everybody, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. I am Drew Scanlon. Joining me, as always, we have Danny O'Dwyer. How are you, Danny? I'm great. Excited for another preseason primer. I know we do this every single year, but they are fruitful endeavors to catch everyone up, especially for those who are just new to the podcast. Hello, new listener. Yes, agreed. Uh, Also joining us, Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Oh, finally, we're getting back to this. (laughs) F1 is in view. Uh, Welcome one and all to our preseason primer episode for the 2020 Formula One season. Uh, The goal of this episode is to explain the entire sport as well as we can uh, in one podcast episode um, with the assumption that you, the listener, have no prior F1 knowledge. So whether you came here after watching Drive to Survive on Netflix uh, or you just wanted to learn about that cool new racing series all the kids are talking about, uh, we want to make sure um, that you can sit down and watch a race and actually know what's going on because... Honestly, with Formula One, there is a bit of a learning curve, and without some context, it's just cars going around in a circle. So, um, totally. I mean, it's it's worth mentioning that this whole podcast kind of started from uh, you know you getting interested in F one and us trying to like learn how this sport works. And I mean, I mean, how many years is this our sixth year doing this? I think, yeah, something like um, that. Yeah, it goes to show that like you know once you're in, you're kind of in forever. So uh, yeah, this is kind of like your indoctrination, dear listener. Yes, uh, and if you have watched F1 in the past, I suppose it'd be possible to skip this episode, but honestly, I think it would serve as a good refresher if you're not as steeped in it, I guess, as, as we are. Um, we will have a separate episode covering uh, the preseason testing uh, and news that is going on before uh, the season starts. Hmm. Um, we should also preface this episode with a warning that this is going to be a lot of information. Uh, <laughs> I, I think our advice is is to not try to remember everything, but to just kind of listen, let it wash over you, and you pick up what you pick up. Uh, then when you watch a race, you know, something will hopefully jog your memory, and you'll remember, oh, right, they mentioned that. That's what that looks like, or whatever. Um, and in terms of developing a favorite team or driver, that also just comes with watching it. You'll see a driver do or say something cool um, and start to like them. And Or same thing goes for the teams. Maybe... Uh, one team doesn't play fairly in your estimation, and then they're the bad guys. So developing those affinities, I think, is is, is part of the fun. Because um, it's not really like other sports where one team plays another. It's more like a reality show where the same <laughs> crew competes every week, you know? Yeah, that's very true. And, and because you're sort of focused on everything at the same time, you know, you're not watching the Yankees play in the Red Sox, you're watching every team playing at the same time you sort of end up uh i guess learning a lot through osmosis i guess so yeah uh yeah i think the primers we try and keep we try and cover everything but we won't go super deep on everything it's it's more to give you like a a general uh idea of what to expect in the race and then yeah fingers crossed you remember you sort of have callbacks to this episode while you're watching the races uh so we'll start off with a broad overview of uh, the sport and then dig into the nitty gritty of things like uh, each driver, um, technical stuff about the cars, rules. Uh, again, uh, don't worry if you get overwhelmed. Um, this entire podcast, like we said uh, before, not just this episode, is designed to be inclusive to newbies and veterans alike. So we, we hope that by listening uh, along with us, you'll pick it up just like just like we did. Uh, so, <clears throat> Formula One is an international car racing series generally agreed to be uh, the pinnacle of motorsport, generally, uh, both in terms of the speed of the cars 
the amount of viewership, uh, and the money it makes. The 2020 season takes place from March to November uh, of this year at 21 different tracks uh, and is comprised of 10 different teams fielding two cars each. So in total, there are 20 drivers. Depending on the position each driver finishes in each race, they are awarded points, and the driver with the most points at the end of the season is the champion. Uh, The teams themselves also receive the points that their two drivers get in every race, and at the end of the season, there is a team champion called the Constructors Champion. Uh, the, The team dynamic, particularly between the two drivers, can be really interesting. As a driver, you want to beat everyone, including your teammate. Actually, in, in special, especially your teammates, since they have a car that is ostensibly identical to yours, meaning you have no excuse to be slower. Um, <laughs> but sometimes we will seem te- see teams issue uh, orders to one driver that favors the other, which can so- cause some uh, delicious drama. Yeah, just it's sort of generally a number one and two driver, right, Rob? It's kind of like a like this is the veteran and this is the up and comer, or I guess most of the time. Yeah, in general, I think uh, this is an interesting point in F one because I'm hard pressed to name an era where it feels like the driver generations are so bifurcated. Yeah, where it really feels like there is an older generation and then a lot of guys who joined the sport within the last like three seasons. Uh, oddly enough, like Max Verstappen uh, is one of the old heads among that class, <laughs> uh, which lets you know how extreme the youth bias has gotten in F1. Uh, but in general, yeah, there was sort of the uh, primary driver, and then what you had were traditionally either like your race manager drivers, like you know old hands who were steady but didn't have a lot of flair, or some sort of journeyman who was coming mm. up through the ranks. Now I feel like every team is trying to sort of find their next uh, you know, racing prodigy, and the spots for journeymen are sort of uh, drying up a little bit. But I think one of the reasons this gets so fraught is if you don't beat your teammate, you get the journeyman label. You know, if you kick your teammates ass, mm, then you might have what it takes to compete at a higher level. So uh, although some of the teams are owned by car manufacturers, so we've got Mercedes, Renault, Alfa Romeo, Ferrari and McLaren. These are all F1 teams. um, Formula One cars share basically nothing with road legal cars and are purpose built for racing. Um, the, the sports governing body, which is called the FIA, which stands for, I had to look this up, the International Automobile Federation in French, uh, <laughs> they issue a sp- set of specifications called a formula. Oh, that, I get it. Uh, each car design has to follow. So broadly, the cars may look similar, but there are many significant differences, differences between them, um, some visible, some not. And that, you know, is another thing that I think we really like. Some of us really like diving into that that technical side. Um, an interesting quirk with Formula One is that some of the teams, typically the ones with the deepest pockets, make their own engines, like uh, Mercedes, Ferrari, and Renault. They then sell these engines to other teams who get to save money on research and development by just buying an engine. Um, generally, the engine manufacturer has an advantage because they're always the first ones to know about any changes to the engine, um, and they can adjust their car's design accordingly to the to fit the engine. This isn't always the case, though, so it can be interesting when like a customer team beats what we call a works team. Um, there is an exception here. There are two teams 
uh, Red Bull and Alpha Tori uh, that buy their engine from Honda, who doesn't have an F1 team but does make an F1 engine. So when we go through the list of teams, drivers, and stuff, we'll uh, let you know which which team uses what engine. Yeah, and uh, in it, response, it does have a, a bearing on the on the car. And in response, Red Bull supplies Honda with a year supply of Red Bull. <laughs> right. Um, teams can also sell other parts as well, like gearboxes, uh, but some of this is restricted by the regulations. Um, and some teams just prefer to build their own stuff, even if it is more expensive. But one of the teams, uh, Haas, buys as much as it is legally allowed to from Ferrari to, <laughs> just to keep costs down. And cost development costs is a huge deal in Formula One. Um, especially in 2020, since teams are also simultaneously doing research and development for the 2021 cars, which are a massive departure from the designs uh, that they've used in the past. And as you might expect, the more you spend on an F1 car, the better it performs. But again, this is a, this is not always the case, and sometimes you'll get some midfield team punching above its weight, which mm. is uh, always fun to see. Uh, and that's something I think is difficult for new race fans to come to terms with, the fact that there is this sharp division between the top teams and the rest of the field. So, sure, it can be boring when you all but know that one or two or three of the teams is going to win. But the more you know about each team's capabilities, the more pleasantly surprised you can be when they do well, even if that means finishing fourth. So, for example, two of the craziest finishes last year were for third place uh, and second place. And that was only exciting for us because we know the context. Um, And that's why we're here, because, again, without context... It's just cars going around in a circle. Yeah, exactly. It's like well, you, if you're if you're trained watching either stock cars or just like I don't know Hollywood movies that involve a race or even kids cartoons that involve a race, you're sort of trained to always look at the you know first car that crosses the checkered flag as the as the be all end all, and that's not really the case in 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 F1. And at the start, it can kind of feel a bit weird, like you have to retrain your brain to like care about it in this different way, but. Um, it's way more interesting and way more, you know, we ultimately would love to see a race in which anyone can win. Um, but the reality of F1 is that, that that's not happening. And the closer we get to it, the better. But it, it doesn't mean that you don't enjoy races. As long as there's good racing, overtaking and challenges and people punching above their weight and, and interesting incidents happening, uh, that makes a good race. Not just, you know, how many drivers are battling for pole position or first. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a couple of questions that I get a lot from people who are new to f1 um one of them is what you get for winning the championship um uh you know as if uh, you know world champion wasn't enough uh, there is a there is a cash prize uh sort of for the team that wins so f1 pays the teams a bonus based on their finishing position at the end of the championship from around 65 million dollars for first place to 15 million for 10th place uh, that's in addition to some other, uh, you know, payments that they make. But that's that's how it works uh, based on finishing position, um, which can mean a lot, especially to a smaller team that does well. You know, that that, you know, influx of uh, dozens of millions of dollars can really make a different difference mm-hmm. for next year. Um, I imagine the drivers also get bonuses from their teams based on their finishing positions, too. And then outside um, of that, there's the sort of economics of marketing, which is a big part of it. Advertising deals that certain drivers yeah. have and, and teams have as well, stuff like that. Yeah, teams especially, I think this is why they do this, like for exposure. I mean, that's why Red Bull is in this, right? Like yeah. Formula One is not like it's <laughs> the 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 cost benefit analysis doesn't really make sense, <laughs> um, but it is about kind of you know that prestige. 
Yeah, I was uh, looking at details earlier on some of one of the teams. I think it was Red Bull in 2011 or 2011 yeah, had like, they spent like $284 million and they earned $285 million. So it's, yeah, yeah it's, the, a lot of teams aren't in this exactly. For, it, it's almost a sport that shouldn't exist, but it does through the sort of sheer will of the passion of the people involved and the fans yeah. as well. Yeah, good point. Um, for reference, though, Lewis Hamilton, last year's champion, is ranked um, 13th on Forbes' list of the world's highest-paid athletes for 2019 wow. at $55 million, uh, behind Ben Roethlisberger and ahead of Russell Westbrook. Cool. Take that, uh, Big Ben. Big Ben would not fit in an <laughs> F1 car. No. Uh, another common question is, how much does the driver actually matter? Mm. Um, as we'll see, some teams are really dominant. Uh, usually a winning team and driver will stick together, which makes it hard to ascertain which is really making the difference. But you can kind of compare um, teammates. I tend to believe it's around 70-30 car to driver. Uh, you can put a bad driver in a great car and they'll do well, but it, I think it takes a, a truly great driver to win uh, a championship. Similarly, if you put the best driver in a mediocre car, they'll probably do better than their teammate, but they're not going to be fighting for the win. Yeah, I think it comes up a lot when, especially we talk to Rob, who I feel like has a has a deep sort of rich um, uh, history of 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 the sport um, in in many ways that we don't. That like you kind of you can't really tell a lot of times until you look. You kind of step back at the end of a driver's career, right, and sort of look at how they did across a number of different teams. Yeah, I think that even gets a bit hard because I think there's an element of the most promising drivers get the best opportunities in their career. And then once you have a winning combination, like right now coming into the season, uh, we are looking at the sixth straight championship for Mercedes. Or is it seven? If they won this year, it would be seven, right? Yes. Uh, so they've, they've racked up six in a row and of those Lewis Hamilton won five. And, that's one of those things where evaluating Lewis Hamilton apart from his team is going to be very hard at the end of his <laughs> yeah. career. We have seen him in like less high-performing cars, and there were struggles. There, I think his first championship, he probably clawed out uh, with with a car that was far from dominant. But it does, it is a signal feature of this era of Formula One that there tends to be a lot of consistency between winning drivers and winning teams. And I think that is very much because of the stakes involved. Once you have a good combination in Formula One, once you have a team that is functioning well and a driver who knows how to run the car, it's really tempting to just keep, you know, putting your chips down on that bet. So, when you watch F1, I think it helps to know what else is going on besides just the race itself. Um, hmm. The race lasts about two hours, but there are actually four other events that take place before it. Three practice sessions and one qualifying session. In the practice sessions, which are sometimes referred to as free practice, the teams can basically do whatever they want for the allotted time, which is 90 minutes for sessions one and two, which take place on Friday, and 60 minutes for session three, which takes place on Saturday. Um, these are generally times for the teams to get their car dialed in for the track to make sure everything is working well, like tires, suspension, that kind of thing. Um, and it's important to get the setup right because once practice is over, the cars enter uh, what is called park ferme, meaning that only minor adjustments are allowed from then on. 
So after practice on Saturday is qualifying, which is kind of a misnomer. This confuses people sometimes. You can't really fail to qualify for the race. Uh, there is a rule in there, but it usually gets ignored. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, the, the actual <laughs> purpose is is to determine what order the cars are going to line up for the start on race day. Um, qualifying is one of those things that uh, it, it seems like it's like a, just a boring time trial, but racing nerds like us actually find it pretty exciting. Um, it has three stages in Q1. Uh, everybody goes out on track and sets timed laps. And the slowest five cars at the end of that session are eliminated and don't move on to Q2. And then it's the same deal with Q2. The slowest five cars are eliminated. So what you're left with in Q3 is the top 10, which do their best to set the fastest lap that they can. Um, The order the cars start in on race day is based on each car's fastest qualifying time. Uh, The car with the fastest overall time starts first, and we call that pole position. Um, And so, like I said, the the short nature of those sessions means that everyone is trying to squeeze the maximum out of their car and the track. So you often get these dramatic finishes where cars are bumping each other out. Uh, And, of course, there's always uh, the chance that a top team will have some issue that causes them to start from low on the grid, which always makes for uh, an interesting race. Or penalties, which we'll get into later. Yeah. And then Sunday is race day. Uh, the races are measured in laps, but are not allowed to exceed two hours in length. Typically, they last around an hour 45 or so. Um, the So the, the two cars from each team look virtually identical to each other. So it can be a little tough to tell the drivers apart. Um, our, our trick for this is to look for the camera pod, which is this little T-bar right on top of the car above the air intake above the driver's head. Uh, the primary driver, which we've usually determined is the one with the most seniority at the team, because mm. sometimes uh, you know the teams will say, we don't have a primary driver, but usually the, the driver with the, the most seniority has the black camera pod, and then the secondary driver has the fluorescent yellow one. From there, though, it's kind of up to you to remember which driver uh, has which. Yeah, you, at the start, you're pretty much mostly trying to figure out which team is which. So the, yeah. the driver is kind of like the next level of that. Yeah, so speaking of teams, um, we're going to go down uh, all the teams here in order that they finished last year. And yeah, we'll, we'll try to, to point out the color of the car. Um, and we'll also link, I'm going to make a note here, uh, to link the, is usually... Um, uh, the the F1 subreddit is, is generally pretty good, and they usually put together like a spotter's guide that has a nice uh, uh, collection of all the the car paint jobs. And you can also right. go to our, our Twitter account where we've retweeted all the, the new paint jobs for the 2021 or the 2020 season. Um, first up, Mercedes. Uh, they are, this is the silver car. Uh, they make their own engine. They're a German team. Their team principal is a guy named Toto Wolf, who's the team principal is like the boss of the team. Um, and they're currently the the Patriots, the Yankees, the, uh, <laughs> the Patriots two years United. ago, maybe. Is that no, the not, equivalent? Not, not anymore. It no? Well, it's messy. It would have been Man City two years ago, but okay. we're now running away with it. But that doesn't really work. All right. Well, <laughs> like Rob said, they have won the last six Constructors Championships uh, and are still the favorites for this year. Um, they generally tend to produce like a really good all around car. Uh, like for example, last year it wasn't as fast as Ferrari on the straights necessarily, and maybe not as good as Red Bull in the corners, but it was super consistent, which is, uh, I'd say Mercedes's mm. calling card. 
They've also got some weird, we'll get into this in our, in our next episode, which where we'll talk more about testing and like setting up for this, uh, this next season, but they've got some weird voodoo going on with this year's car in the form of, um, uh, a system called the dual axis steering system. This is the wildest thing. I it's could not so believe weird. this when I saw this. I was like, oh my God, they've turned the car into a flight sim. Yeah, and, and I think this is where I feel, you know, they don't just crush everyone. They're also in like continually innovating, which I think mm. is makes it a little easier to swallow for me uh, that they're not just like, uh, you know, sitting back on their haunches and just yeah. using money to just, I don't know, buy the best players, right? Hmm. Um, their drivers, Lewis Hamilton, he is a British driver. He has won a total of six drivers championships, including five of the last six years. Second, only to, um, uh, former F1 driver, Michael Schumacher, who has seven. So I think it's safe to say that Hamilton is one of the greatest of all time. Um, he's also the very first and only black driver to race in F1. Mm. Uh, some people don't like him because he wins all the time, but he is as close as you get in F1 to a rags to riches story. His dad worked multiple jobs to pay for him to go to, uh, uh, to race carts as a kid, which is where most F1 drivers get their start. Um, he also tends to draw fire for being seen as a jet setter, but the guy still wins. So I can't <laughs> fault him for lack of focus. <laughs> uh, he's, he's also pretty open with the causes he supports, which you don't hear from a lot of other drivers. He's, he helped open a vegetarian burger chain and recently donated uh, half a million dollars to Australian wildfire relief. Um, he's the kind of guy I don't know if I'd enjoy hanging out with necessarily, but over time I've gained a lot of respect for him. Um, that's not to say that I wouldn't enjoy a closer championship fight this year, however. Hmm. Uh, last year he, like I said, won the championship. His teammate, uh, Valtteri Bottas, uh, although technically it's, Botas, but we can't help but <laughs> call him Botas. Uh, we get a lot of complaints about pronunciation there. There's a lot of ways to pronounce a lot of different things in here, which we'll get into. Oh, uh, yeah. let's. This this is the this is a, a real clown car of people with names you've never heard of as well. Oh yeah, yeah. F1 just in general is just like it's like watching Star Trek basically. <laughs> uh, Valtteri is Finnish from Finland. Uh, has seven wins in Formula One, all with Mercedes, and is sort of, he's sort of the opposite of Hamilton. He is not flashy at all. He's very reserved. Um, I was a Botas fan when he used to be racing uh, with the Williams team. Mm. Uh, although, I guess since he's moved to Mercedes, it's been tough for him to get a sense of his, or it's been tough for me to get a sense of his form beyond, well, he's not doing as well as Hamilton, which is a tough ask, so I don't envy the guy. Uh, also, I learned in doing a little research here, uh, his rank in the Finnish military um, is Lance Corporal. Oh, nice. Are uh, they yeah. conscripted there? Do they yeah, all... they have compulsory service. Yeah. Uh, and his mother is an undertaker. Oh, my God, really? Well, yeah. a lot of pieces just fell into place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last year, he placed second in the Drivers' Championship. Uh, Rob, I think you're up next. Prancy, yeah. prancy. Uh, so... Coming in a distant second is the Ferrari team. Uh, perhaps the most important team in Formula One history, if not the greatest. Uh, Ferrari is, of course, the uh, F1 team that was founded by uh, the great Enzo Ferrari, uh, who is sort of one of the 
the the Vince Lombardi slash Henry Ford of uh, motorsports okay. in, in some ways. Um, and that legend has grown through a series of eras in which Ferrari has waxed and waned, but often been a dominant team. And there's a lot of mystique and legend built up around this team. Uh, the most recent era of this was, of course, when Michael Schumacher was with the team and they went on a run whose dominance is really only comparable uh, to this current Mercedes era. Uh, Ferrari is also a team that's had trouble finding an identity beyond the Schumacher years. And I think this has been the story of the last decade at this point uh, at Ferrari is a team that is sort of haunted by past glories and successes, but hasn't really found a way to write a new chapter uh, in that, in that saga. Uh, their team principal is um, Mattia Bonato. He took over sort of, not unexpectedly necessarily, uh, but one of the things about the Ferrari team is there's often a great deal of court politics and corporate politics behind the scenes. Benato was installed very late uh, in the offseason last year to run the team. He comes from a technical background. The last few team principals at Ferrari have been more from the corporate side. Uh, Bonato is a Bonato's an engineer, and his leadership, I would argue, is still probably unproven. Uh, and one of the things that he was installed to do was bring Ferrari, at least if nothing else, up to par on a technical front. But that has proven really difficult against the dominance of the Ferrari. Amidst all these stresses, uh, a lot of the pressure is communicated down to two very different drivers in two very different places in their career. The senior driver, but not necessarily the primary driver anymore, is Sebastian Vettel, uh, who had a dominant uh, series of championships at Red Bull uh, prior to moving over to, uh, over to Ferrari. While he was at Red Bull, uh, Sebastian Vettel sort of seemed like the natural heir to Michael Schumacher, a German driver, uh, very perfectionist, um, very much somebody who dominated races from start to finish, and was also a bit unproven in a fight. Uh, the Red Bull era was defined by a great deal of technical excellence, uh, which is you know what you what you always find in F one. Uh, behind a multiple championship winning team. But the Red Bull era was uniquely uh, uncompetitive in some ways, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, when they were on their day, uh, the Red Bull kind of ran away with races in a way that I'm not even sure Ferrari, uh, Mercedes has reliably done uh, in recent years. Sebastian Vettel, since getting to Ferrari, has found himself without that kind of advantage and over the last few years has struggled. And there have been a lot of cracks appearing in his racing form. Uh, certainly on this show, there is a great deal of concern trolling, particularly by, by me, I will admit, about how Vettel is performing. But I think there is something there uh, in his racecraft right now. And with the overall sense of pressure and desperation that sometimes hangs over the Ferrari team. Uh you know, he is coming in for the great Fernando Alonso, who also ended up having kind of a bad stint at Ferrari. And so this has sort of been multiple years now of Ferrari trying to recruit 
uh, generational talents to sort of take on the mantle of Schumacher, and it never quite works out. There's potential, though, for things to be changing here because their second driver, uh, but not quite their junior driver, <laughs> is uh, Charles Leclerc. Or, and the, speaking of the, main, the, the names thing, Charles Leclerc is uh, from Monaco, and depending on who he is speaking to, will pronounce his name in a different way, which threw me for a great loop when I was watching the Drive to Survive documentary and heard him uh, introduce himself as Charles Leclerc. Uh, at which point I was like, well, he seems to prefer that. So I started saying that, and I heard from a lot of people not to do that. So Charles Leclerc, that's how, that's how we'll do it on the podcast from now on. Uh, he seems very evasive in terms of the question of how to actually pronounce it, because he doesn't want to get into the linguistic politics of, the, of southern uh, France and the Mediterranean. Anyway, point is, uh, Charles Leclerc is an enormously, came in as an enormously promising uh, driver, and in very short order, proved that he had what it took to win races with Ferrari. Uh, I think it was his second race with Ferrari at Bahrain uh, last year where he looked poised to run away with that race. And it was a technical fault uh, that cost him, uh, cost him the lead. But throughout the season, a lot of times he appeared to be the slightly stronger driver. And... That combined with some misjudgments by Vettel and some odd intra-team politics throughout the season sort of set up a situation where Leclerc looked like potentially the stronger driver, or at least the stronger driver of this Ferrari. And coming into the season, rather intriguingly, Ferrari came in saying that in Contra contravention of Ferrari tradition, where they've always very much had a primary driver that they favored and a secondary driver whose job it was to like do whatever they asked. Coming to this season, they've said they're on equal footing. They are mm. free to race. Uh, and that is rather fraught because these are two drivers who, when they've been free to race, have absolutely hit each other. Uh, yep. They have they got into each other uh, rather inf uh, infamously at Brazil last year and they seem like one of those duos. And this has been a uh, arc in Vettel's career as well. He sometimes has trouble with teammates and racing his teammates cleanly. Um, and coming into the season, uh, there's a very odd dynamic where Leclerc is many years Vettel's junior, but he is the one who got a long-term contract extension from Ferrari. And now Ferrari says they have no preference between their two drivers. So the politics around Ferrari and the pressure on them to produce some results before this era of F1 ends, uh, and we move on to a new technical spec next year, is incredibly high. And it has a lot of uh, the, the results of the season will have a pretty high impact, I think, on the arc of these two men's careers uh, moving forward. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. It's definitely one of the, the big elements of this year's season that I think a lot of people are excited uh, to look at. Uh, worth mentioning that we're covering these teams in order that they finished last season. Is that right, Drew? Yeah. Yeah, cool. So the next one up, uh, uh, again, maybe a distant third <laughs> uh, from Ferrari's second mm. is Red... Oh, yeah, what do you think? Well, we had one driver who did very well and the other driver did well enough for his first season, let's say that. Um, 
Red Bull, you know them from energy drinks. You know them for mixing them with vodka in nightclubs in your downtown and having a real good time. Um, and now you know them from racing. Uh, this team turned up 15 years ago. Uh, they still feel new to many F1 uh, uh, fans, but they've uh, they've they've been around, and and they also had a sort of a very dominant block of years there between 2010 and 2013 where they won four championships in a row uh, as Rob was saying with a lot of help from Sebastian Vettel and um, they've sort of uh, waxed and waned a little bit in the past few years they were sort of second for a while there had a dodgy season where they were in fourth uh, and have kind of been the third team now for a good four years um, they have two young drivers one uh, both of which come from sort of uh, racing families um, but one is who is very much the sort of uh, the new phenom and another one uh, more of an up-and-comer um, they're based at Milton Keynes their team principal is Christian Horner who's one of the sort of more charismatic people on the grid uh, you'll often see him the the broadcasts tend to call him up during the races as well um, they have an engine from Honda, which Drew said earlier on. Uh, the official team name is Aston Martin Red Bull Racing. And their two drivers are Max Verstappen and Alexander Albon. Uh, Max Verstappen uh, is the son of Joss Verstappen, who is an F1 driver. He's 22 years old. He came third in the championship last year, and this is his fourth season with Red Bull. Uh, Max is sort of the... Uh, he's, he seems kind of fun-loving when he first turned up, but is an incredibly... Um, determined competitor uh, doesn't always play nice when his teammates gets a little bit too close to him which I think maybe kind of suits Red Bull in a way to have a driver like uh, Albon next to him um, he's kind of the driver people say that if you know F1 was a meritocracy he'd probably be the one uh, winning the races or winning his the boss says that more than anybody else Danny. Well, that's that, that's true <laughs> people are and saying that- <laughs> yes they are wearing Red Bull uniforms but people are saying he's I, put it this way he's one of the drivers then one of the better drivers who we haven't seen in a truly championship winning car um Red Bull are every year trying to close that gap. Um, we'll get to it in preseason training, but um, it or testing rather. But it, it doesn't necessarily look like Max will have his go this year either. But he'll certainly be picking up a couple of uh, 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 pole positions, podiums, um, and hopefully trying to get third place or higher again this year. Uh, his teammate Alexander Albon is actually a year older than him, but is a uh, newer to F1. Both of these drivers had careers pretty quick careers getting up through the ranks in uh, uh, Formula, or GP2, I guess, um, uh, Formula 2. Uh, Alex came eighth last year. His father was a touring car driver. His mother is Thai, um, and he uh, is generally well-liked. Uh, he's kind of one of the, there's a sort of a, like a, like three drivers. They're kind of like the Beatles who, who all kind of came up from uh, GP2 um, and uh, who are kind of well-liked generally. Um, uh, he's one of them, and, and people seem to, to really be uh, pulling for him. Uh, in a race last year in Brazil, he almost got his first podium and sort of missed out tragically with only a couple of turns left to go. Um, uh, so he's kind of, you know, people are fans of Max for their racing. I think a lot of people are fans of Alex because they, I don't know, project maybe into him. He's kind of like an F1, he's kind of like the F1 fan who just so happens to be an F1 driver. He's very approachable and personal in that way. Um, so yeah, Red Bull, they'll be in amongst it with the Ferraris this year, uh, or with Ferrari this year. Um, maybe actually now that I think about it in testing, they're, they're probably look like they're maybe ahead of the, the prancing horse this year, but, uh, yeah, that's the, the two of their drivers, uh, and their car, I guess, in terms of its color 
is what do we call it? It's like a, it's a dark like a blue, d- dark a blue with a big red bull on the side. Yeah, <laughs> can't really miss it. Hard to miss, um, yeah. The the next team I have here uh, is uh, another car you can't really miss. They're kind of orange and blue. They stand out maybe more than a lot of the other cars. Uh, it's McLaren, which has a you know a long running history in F1 in particular. Um, you know, not not exactly a sort of a street car create manufacturer but uh well loved within the world of motorsport but they've had a tough you know decade let's say um they they were the subject of a documentary series what was it called again grand prix driver grand prix driver which which kind of covers their their uh previous generational struggles with one of the best drivers of all time uh you know barely picking up points in their uh, their lemon of a car but they've they had a better season last year and ended up uh getting fourth position out of it much to the surprise and i think uh, delight of many f1 fans mclaren are sort of generally liked as a team uh their team principal uh, zach brown um is a an american who is you know kind of again fun i don't know if i'd say charismatic but he's, he's definitely a character uh, they're also based in the UK, much like uh, uh, Mercedes, uh, in a way, I guess, a uh, Red Bull, um, uh, and uh, they're they're based in Woking. The two drivers they have are uh, again kind of another young up and comer who's done really well in, in junior uh, series and uh, a more established driver who. I don't know, perhaps we're not expecting a lot from, but again, comes from racing heritage. Car- Carlos Sainz Jr., um, his father, a famous driver in his own right, uh, came sixth last year. It's his second season uh, with McLaren. Um, he's generally well-liked. He's kind of, he's going to fade probably into the mid-pack, which is kind of the, we're going to talk about a lot now with these teams, which is kind of like the, the what are we saying, like like sixth to, to 12th sort of part of the uh, the the um the the race where well, almost a lot of the more interesting sort of driving happens yeah the thing a lot of teams are coming into the season saying is they're gunning for the fourth place position in the championship because the first mm. three teams we mentioned barring some wild stuff the season is going to start out with some assortment of those three teams being in the top three spots. This fourth spot, the best of the rest spot, has actually been pretty dynamic uh, in the last few years and has become a lot more competitive. And so I think heading at like this next crop of teams we're talking about, I think there's a lot of teams who think they have a credible shot at landing that spot, which has a fair amount of bragging rights attached to it, but also a fair amount of money. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a massive difference to some of these teams as well, which generally don't have the operational budget as a of a Ferrari or a, or a Mercedes. Uh, Carlos Sainz came sixth last year. Like I said, uh, his teammate um, struggled a little bit more. Lando Norris, he's younger. Uh, he's only 20 years old. Um, he's sort of F1's de facto meme lord. He is a young, <laughs> uh, uh, cool, hip kid who's on the Snapchats and Twitch streaming and sort of just generally making everyone else feel old. Um, he came 11 last year. Uh, much like Carlos Sainz, it's his second year uh, with McLaren. Uh, massively successful uh, youth uh, career in, in uh, other classes. Um, and yeah, he's just like a fun driver. I think both of these drivers are defined by a sort of... Uh, I find them both almost entirely egoless, which is something you don't often see in F1. They're quite down-to-earth, honest own their mistakes um, and uh, are, you know, I think 
as a result, fans kind of like the two of them. So it's been cool seeing McLaren come back. Um, I think people will hope that they'll be fighting a little bit more. Um, you know, it's amazing to even think that they came fourth last year, considering the past, you know, recent history of this this team. I think a lot of people would be interested in seeing them, you know, try and fight for, for third or, or see how they do. Uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see as the, the season starts. All right. Well, next up is Renault. Maybe you've heard of this French car manufacturer. They are yellow and black. Uh, I th- I think they haven't. I think they. Right. We've only seen their <laughs> testing livery, uh, as the paint job is called. Um, so we don't really know what they were yellow and black last year. They make their own engine. Uh, they also supply an engine to McLaren. Um, their team principal is a guy named Cyril Abitable, who has uh, his own uh, section of. Um, Season one's Drive to Survive series, uh, it's particularly sparring with uh, Christian Horner. They have won two championships in 2005 and 2006, uh, although they've been in and out of Formula One a number of times. Um, they, in 2016 at least, were the ninth largest auto manufacturer in the world um, and are backed in part by the French government. So, They've theoretically got some deep pockets, but that hasn't exactly translated into F1 dominance uh, in recent years. So um, they're kind of... uh, I personally think they're kind of a hard team to root for, Mm. um, but I really like their drivers. Uh, Number one, with a bullet, Daniel Ricciardo. He's Australian and is a crowd favorite. You cannot help but like this guy. He uh, is always smiling and making jokes. Um, you may hear, hear him called Ricciardo, uh, cause that's how his last name is spelled, but he pronounces it Ricardo, uh, or his nickname, uh, the honey badger. Uh, <laughs> if you've watched the first season of drive to survive, you may recall him singing a song about his balls. Um, and that he made a surprise switch from Red Bull to Renault at the end of the 2018 season. Uh, it has yet to pay off. Uh, yeah. they, I think this is their... Uh, since they returned to the sport, this is their best finish, uh, Renault's, uh, in fifth place. Um, Ricardo himself finished ninth. Uh, he has seven wins in Formula One overall, uh, all of them with Red Bull, uh, and has placed as high as third in the Drivers' Championship. Uh, but again, last year he was ninth. His teammate is a Frenchman named Esteban Ocon, uh, who also had a big part of Drive to Survive. Um, like Hamilton, Ocon also comes from, uh, you know, somewhat humble beginnings. Uh, his parents sold their business and home and moved into a motor home to follow him around on his international karting competitions. Uh, and he sat out last year when he got bumped out of, uh, the team he was at racing point because, uh, another driver's dad bought the team. Uh, we'll which get to I that. believe Rob we'll will get, get to. to. Uh, so last year he served as a Mercedes reserve driver for a year before being brought back uh, to Renault this year, replacing a driver named Nico Hulkenberg. Um, and in, in he wasn't racing last year, but in 2018 he placed 12th in the Drivers' Championship. And just one thing about Nico Hulkenberg, you owe it to yourself to watch the Drive for Survive episode where Nico Hulkenberg, famous international racing star, is introduced to a bunch of children at a Microsoft store in Texas. Uh-huh. And one of the worst things I've ever seen happen to a professional athlete unfolds as these kids ask him their burning question, how many races have you won? 
And there's a funny thing about the arc of Nico Hulkenberg's career that becomes very clear at that moment. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah. Gosh. I, at this point, we are two days away uh, from the release of the second season. Uh, wow. I, really? I can't wait. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, all right. Next up, the team called Alpha Tori. I hate this. You Still may also weird. hear it called Alpha Tauri. Oh, no. Watch. Which I don't think I'm going to be able to bring myself to say. So we're no. probably going to say Tori. I don't hate myself you. enough to do that. Uh, this team used to be called Toro Rosso because uh, they're Italian. Uh, the Italian <laughs> sister team of Red Bull. Toro Rosso is Italian for Red Bull. Uh, but turns out Red Bull also has a fashion brand that they would love to for you to know about and so they renamed uh their second formula one team alpha tori the name of their fashion brand they're a white car um oh, it's white and i think yeah i think I it's my favorite livery uh going i think um they also last if you're just joining us drew is the normie uh <laughs> <laughs> yep just like plain white tees that's it I think those um, white liveries always look good in isolation, but then you see them on the track and you realize, like, damn, there's a lot of cars running a pretty, like, white, like, design with a color trim that disappears under a lot of different lighting conditions. I think that's mm -hmm. my beef with it, is, like, a lot of the, like, white plus color teams tend to blur the hell together for me. I think that's less yeah. of an issue now that a lot of teams are going the bold direction, but... Uh, yeah, this, this Alpha Tori livery. Mm, I don't know, man. I don't know. Oh, I love it. I love I, it. I'm uh, into it, yeah. I, like, I they, think I like uh, the, the, the infinite sign on the side or whatever. Uh, they race a Honda engine. Uh, their team principal is Franz Tost. Um, and like I said, they are a Red Bull sister team. They're owned by the same you know, uh, corporate entity as the Red Bull. Um, and they are kind of serve as the R&D and driver farm team. Uh, for Red Bull. So Sebastian Vettel, Daniel Ricciardo, Max Verstappen, Carlos Sainz all got their starts here. Um, and uh, <laughs> they've, let's see, uh, they've gotten one win in 2008 with Sebastian Vettel. Uh, and last year had some wild finishes. Um, one of their drivers got third place. One of the drivers got second. Uh, and last year, the team as a whole finished sixth place. Interestingly, both of their drivers suffered the same career trajectory mm. from Toro Rosso. They were oh, graduated God, to Red Bull and then for various reasons were kicked out of the team in the middle of the season back down to Toro Rosso. They're in timeout. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, driver number one here, Pierre Gasly. He is French. Uh, he made his debut at Toro Rosso in 2017, started at Red Bull in 2019, but was then bumped back down uh, for Alex Albon in the middle of the season. Um, I don't really know what to make. Sorry, go ahead, Brian. I was going to say, I feel like if it doesn't go, like people who get promoted into Red Bull, if it doesn't go well, it rapidly turns into the movie Whiplash, I think, for like <laughs> struggling drivers. Like you either make it because you are enough of a talent but also a bit of a monster uh to thrive in that environment or you just get absolutely crushed by the pressure cooker atmosphere that 
not Christian Horner brings a little bit of it, but like it's very clear the higher ups in the Red Bull organization do not are not patient when it comes to results. Hmm. Yeah, particularly the shadowy figure of one Doctor Helmut Marco, who uh, oversees a lot of the driver signings. You may hear his name uh, over the course of the year. I don't really know what to make of Gasly as a driver. He just seems like a guy that is capable of big performances, but is usually just kind of there. Um, he did want, win the GP2 championship, which is the predecessor to Formula 2 uh, in 2016. He achieved a surprise fourth place finish at Toro Rosso in, the only, in only the second race of his first full season, which was kind of cool. Uh, and he is the driver that last year got a surprise second place Hmm. Uh, in a wild Brazilian Grand Prix, um, finishing seventh place overall uh, last year. His teammate, Daniel Kvyat, or Kvyat, or Kvyat, or Kvyat. This is another <laughs> one that's really tough to pronounce. Uh, he is Russian, if you couldn't tell. Um, and he also sort of occupies uh, the same can-be-good-but-often-missable spot in my mind, hmm. but with more of a chaotic edge. So just like Gasly, Kvyat, Kvyat, was promoted to Red Bull from Toro Rosso, but then demoted four races into the season after he hit Sebastian Vettel twice in one race, earning himself the nickname The Torpedo. Uh, after that, Toro Rosso dropped him completely for over a year before picking him back up for the 2019 season. Uh, also, he has a daughter with uh, Kelly Piquet, the daughter of three-time F1 champion Nelson Piquet. Oh, you're kidding. Huh. Yeah. Uh, last year, he placed 13th in the Drivers' Championship. Mm. All right, Rob. All right. So, speaking get to, of... Get to the point. <laughs> yeah. The racing point. Not for long. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, Racing Point is what used to be called the Force India team. And uh, Force India was one of those really surprising success stories, a team that uh, joined F1 and immediately racked up some impressive results and despite not being a particular like a particularly well-heeled team uh was often in that best of the rest uh spot in the last couple years uh force india's ceo uh vijay maliev was embroiled in a lot of financial and political scandal uh, that I can't, I frankly can't navigate. It's one of those issues where <laughs> there are a lot of accusations of malfeasance, but also it's tied to uh, the domestic politics in some cases of India. Mm. And so it's one of those long running legal sagas uh, that happen to people who are enormously wealthy and enormously powerful. Uh, and I can't quite uh, make heads or tails of uh, to what degree he was an international financial criminal on the run from the law, uh, hiding from the long arm of justice, and to what degree uh, he just made the wrong enemies. But either way, in the last year, he ran out of uh, cards to play and was forced to give up the team. And the team struck out on its own and became Racing Point. And the person who saved the team from financial collapse uh, in the wake of all this was Lawrence Stroll. Lawrence Stroll is a... People say Lawrence Stroll is somebody like a fashion magnate or somebody from the world mm. of, of, of fashion. And that's true, but it's more that he's a finance guy whose specialty was acquisitions and turnarounds of uh, distressed uh, like 
fashion and fashion adjacent brands. And he came in in part because he has a son, Lance Stroll, who has been very eager to get his own racing career uh, going. Lance Stroll was racing for the Williams team uh, as that team and, and Lawrence Stroll was kind of helping bankroll the struggling Williams team. Nothing was going well over there. Lance's own abilities were a little bit unclear, uh, but the way all of that ended up getting resolved was here comes Lawrence with his money to effectively take over the former Force India team, uh, rebrand at Racing Point, and effectively guarantee Lance Stroll one of the spots at that team, which is how Esteban Ocon ended up being rideless uh, at the end of last year. Uh, at the at the end of the of the 2018 yeah. season, uh, and had to sit out last year. Racing Point. I guess I didn't realize this until I was sort of researching uh, what some Racing Point people were saying heading into this season. I didn't realize how bad things apparently were over at Racing Point. A lot of people heading into this season are talking about how great it is that people are not working two jobs uh, at Racing Point, uh, as a matter of course. Uh, So this was a team that even before they were uh, sold off and reincorporated as Racing Point, this was very much a team uh, that had the walls closing in on it and had a lot of pressures being put on staff and drivers. And basically a lot of sweat was being used to make up for a lack of resources. That apparently is beginning to lift. Uh, The team is better funded than it's been in ages. They've staffed up enormously. They were a team of 400 heading into the 2019 season. I think they've got about a head count of 465 uh, right now heading into this one. Um, Interestingly enough, this appears like it's going to be the last year for Racing Point because next year, uh, Lawrence Stroll has recently effectively acquired an ownership stake in Aston Martin. Uh, the entire car manufacturer. Mm. Um, And so next year, this team is probably going to be rebadged as Aston Martin and enter as a, uh, what's called a works team. Uh, Effectively, that won't, that only be partially true, right? It'll still be the, uh, it'll still be the racing point team. They're still going to be buying their engine from Mercedes, but it's going to have a car manufacturer brand behind it to that. They are powered by a Mercedes engine. And one of the interesting things this season is that the Racing Point relationship with Mercedes has gotten a lot closer. And heading into this season, Racing Point showed up with a car that looked pretty much identical to last year's winning Mercedes. Uh, And there's a bit of controversy around the F1 paddock around this because... This is one of those things that is becoming murkier as uh, the years go on. A number of truly independent teams dwindles. Um, There's a lot of question as to there's some debate as to how much those customer teams should still be obligated to develop their own technology and design and teams like Haas. Uh, which we'll we'll get to, uh, have sort of been the first to breach some of the traditions around that by effectively buying more than just an engine, but a lot of car design, a lot of a lot of components uh, from the team that made the engine. Racing Point is going in that direction as well, uh, and their position is, hey, we'd be fools not to copy 
the winning design of last year. And if anyone knows how to build a car around a Mercedes engine, it's Mercedes. So this is what we're going to do. Uh, either way, uh, the team is on the soundest footing. It's been in quite some time. And they are led uh, on the track uh, by team principal Otmar Safnauer, who is, despite uh, a pretty Eastern European sounding name, uh, he is a guy from Michigan. He is he's a racing engineer from Michigan. When you hear him talk, he sounds like a NASCAR uh, crew chief. It's, it's, it's yeah. great. He speaks uh, Hungarian, though. Yeah. Um, he is a pretty, uh, I would say, again, in keeping with that sort of NASCAR crew chief, uh, you know, demeanor, a lot of F1 team principals tend to be big characters. Uh, they tend to be a little bit edgy. Otmar Safnauer generally gives the vibe of a man perennially unimpressed and unconcerned. Uh, just, just, it's always a good day to be, good day to go racing. Uh, for for old Omar, uh, on the track they've got uh, the the duo of Sergio Perez and Lance Stroll. Uh, Sergio Perez is a pretty well performing and well regarded uh, driver. Um, he is sometimes his own worst enemy. Uh, he has had a few. Unforced errors, I would say, under under pressure. Uh, he had a poisonous relationship with his former teammate, Esteban Ocon, uh, and they were always at each other's throats uh, throughout, their, throughout their time together. Uh, Perez finished 10th in last year's uh, championship. Uh, but nevertheless, he is a very talented driver. He's a very steady hand. Uh, it remains to be seen, you know, with the car coming along this season – how far can he drive it up in, into those standings, right? Does he have what it takes to drive the car a bit beyond itself uh, and into real contention? Lance Stroll uh, is somebody who is tough to evaluate. Um, he tends to be a pretty poor qualifier, but a pretty decent performer on race day. Um, also, he does sort of struggle with the stigma, and I certainly uh, tend to hold this against him. He is a guy who would not be there if his dad did not effectively buy a team. Uh, and there still, I don't think, has been anything to make the case that Lance Stroll would be an F1 driver if not for not just family connections, but uh, a great deal of inherited wealth and resources. Um, and that is sort of Lance Stroll's cross to bear. That is the thing he has to prove uh, because I don't think he gets a lot of respect automatically as a driver. There's always been a bias in Formula One against so-called pay drivers, people who are there because of sponsorships or other connections like that. I think Lance is probably the most pay of all paid drivers uh, we've seen in quite some time. And his medal as a racer, I don't think has been fully established. So this is, again, a pretty critical for his reputation, even if uh, his father's ownership of the team means his seat is probably pretty safe. Our next team uh, that we got to get to is Alfa Romeo, the former uh, Swiss Sauber team. Uh, they are... Alfa Romeo is a car brand, but a bit like the situation with uh, Racing Point turning to Aston Martin, mm. Alfa Romeo is kind of the Ferrari, you know, 1.5 team uh, in some ways. Again, they're buying their engine off Ferrari. They're buying a lot of, uh, you know, the back end components off of Ferrari. 
there's a pretty close relationship between those teams. Uh, and so once again, like Alfa Romeo is, you know, more of a customer team, uh, than it is a, than, than it is a works team. Um, I guess I would say they've been a bit of a non-entity the last couple of, the last couple of years. Uh, they were they probably had their most exciting time uh, when Charles uh, Leclerc was driving for them. Uh, that's mm. that's when suddenly uh, that team appeared to have a lot going for it and appeared to be pretty relevant. But they didn't really maintain that form. Uh, very effectively once he was gone. And while they finished eighth in the standings last year, that's mostly because they were the least troubled of the bottom three teams on the grid. Uh, and so Alfa Romeo, far from best of the rest, is maybe uh, in that best of the worst uh, category, mm. uh, which is something they were obviously hoping to change. They're Team is also in a bit of an odd place. It's a, it's a bit of an odd <laughs> mismatch uh, in terms of drivers. On the one hand, you have Kimi Raikkonen, a formula, uh, a former Formula One uh, champion, a long tenured driver at Mercedes, and kind of a legendary personality for his lack of personality, uh, <laughs> which went from being an odd quirk to becoming kind of a fascinating affect. Uh, Kimi Raikkonen is a character I think a lot of us have ended up being a little bit obsessed with uh, because he's so nonchalant and so... Um, he's like aggressively nonchalant. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, like a bit like in uh, North American football, Marshawn Lynch, uh, sort of refusing <laughs> to play along with reporters' questions. Uh, very dry. A very good and reliable driver. Uh, one who was sort of pushed out at Mercedes just because they needed to make room for a young and upcoming talent. Um, and Ferrari? Pardon? You mean Ferrari? Oh, yeah. Uh, at Ferrari. He was sort of sh shown the door there uh, despite arguably sometimes being the more consistent driver there. Uh, but he moved, moved on, and uh, last year he finished 12th in the standings. His teammate is Antonio Giovinazzi, who last year the argument around him was he was coming from a year where he hadn't had a racing seat. Uh, a bit like Ocon coming to the season, uh, just he'd had a gap year where he was mostly doing like simulator work and such. Um he didn't quite come along, I would say, last year, the way people were hoping. I mean, there's a lot of hope that once he got the rust off, uh, you know, you'd see what he was capable of. It felt throughout a lot of the season like the rust was still coming off and maybe that there were there were some deficiencies in his game. Uh, so I think Giovinazzi remains in a bit of an odd place uh, in terms of regard on the grid. Uh, I think he comes in without a lot of conviction uh, mm. behind him. This is probably a make or break year from him. Uh, worth mentioning as well. Um, their reserve driver is Robert Kubica, who is, was like hands down going to be probably a formula one champion, uh, was probably going to be a driver at Ferrari some years ago, uh, was badly hurt in a rally accident. And after years away from the sport, uh, and a lot of physical rehab made his way back to Formula One last year with the Williams team. Uh, things did not go well with Williams. Uh, it's unclear how much of that was due to Kubica uh, 
not quite having it anymore versus having a pretty bad car. Either way, he's been sort of uh, doing a lot of the testing effort for uh, Alfa Romeo this year coming out of the gate. And one of the odd notes uh, coming to this year is that Alfa Romeo does not have a proper simula- simulator set up. Uh, while they have a wind tunnel, uh, they don't really have a professional grade racing simulator for drivers to do testing on. And this is one of those issues in Formula One. Formula One to control costs really restricts how much you get to put cars on the track and how much like time drivers get to be on the track uh, when there's not actually a race weekend going on. So it's really critical that teams have facilities to run these kind of simulations and tests. And that's a place where uh, Alfa Romeo is still trying to play catch up uh, under the leadership of team principal Frederick Vasseur, uh, who is someone who has made no impression on me whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't hear from him very much. No, no. not at all. No. Uh, all right, next up we've got uh, Haas F1 team, an American oh boy. F1 team. Yes. Uh, and mm. when we say the nationality of these teams... Generally, what we mean is where the money comes from, because yeah. most of the teams have uh, their offices in the UK. A few of them have them in Italy. But yeah, that's that's the case here. We uh, we have team principal Gunter Steiner, um, who, you, again, you may recall from Drive to Survive as a particularly foul mouthed German accented. I believe he's grew up in Italy, though. Hmm. Uh, anyway. This is F1's youngest team, having started in 2016, and an original one at that. They didn't go the normal route of buying an existing team. They created a whole new one. Um, Haas, the company, makes computerized machining equipment. They also have a NASCAR team. So somewhat ironically, they outsource as much as, uh, of the car as they can. They buy most of their parts from Ferrari, and an Italian company called uh, Dallara makes their chassis. Um, I, I think worth pointing out, I haven't... Uh, dived into this too much, but uh, in the wake of Racing Point looking like they totally copied Mercedes' car, um, I did learn that there are severe restrictions on information sharing. Like Mercedes, even though they're buddy-buddy with Racing Point, maybe, they can't just... It is illegal for them to just give them the plans. So Mm. uh, Racing Point's um, technical director was answering some interview questions, and he basically said like, well, yeah, I mean, we're developing the 2021 car as well. So uh, we thought it would just be maybe a good idea to try something different and just copy Mercedes. So we took a lot of pictures uh, and just tried to, oh my God. Uh, you know, recreate it in our lab. Um, just copy their homework. Yeah. So Haas, I think, also has a, uh, a history of just like looking at what Ferrari is doing and, and, and taking that. But they do buy a lot of their cars, the gearbox um, uh, as well. I think the there are a few things that you're not allowed to buy, namely the uh, aerodynamic parts of your car. You ha- must create yourself. Um, so that's, that's what Haas has been doing. Last year was rough for them. They placed ninth after finishing fifth the year prior. Uh, and have also had issues with their drivers battling each other on track, sometimes resulting in contact. Um, also, last year, they were sponsored by a company called Rich Energy. Oh, boy. Uh, another energy drink company, which led to some truly bizarre news stories. And some great that, Patreon content. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, Frankly, we would need an entire other podcast episode to go into all of that, <laughs> uh, which we have done. Um, 
their drivers. Uh, first up, we've got Kevin Magnuson, a Danish driver. He's the son of a former F1 driver and four-time Le Mans GT winner, Jan Magnuson, uh, who also uh, spent some time in uh, the kart series in the 90s. Um, Kevin got second place in his very first F1 race in 2014, which is really cool. Uh, but then was dropped by his team the following year, uh, during which time he worked as a welder, which is maybe my favorite uh, fact about him. He joined Haas in 2017, making him the only driver in this era of hybrid cars to drive with all four engine manufacturers. Wow. Um, I like Magnussen. He is one of the most, if not the most, aggressive drivers uh, on track. He does not care who you are. He is going to run into you. Uh, He's aggressive off track as well. Some of his, uh, there's some rich quotes uh, that he said during <laughs> yes. uh, during interviews, sometimes during other people's interviews. <laughs> That's right. Uh, last year, he placed 16th. Uh, his teammate, Roman Grosjean. Um, he is French, but he kind grew of. up in Switzerland. There you go. Uh, he's another loose cannon on the Haas team. He is known for crashing, uh, most spectacularly in the 2012 Belgian Grand Prix, for which he earned a one-race ban. Um, but he also seems to be a really nice guy. I, I feel for drivers who gain a reputation like that, um, because every mistake they do feeds into that narrative, you know? Uh, he wrote a cookbook with his wife, uh, <laughs> once chased burglars from his home, uh, and appears in the music video Dangerous by David Guetta. So, wow. um, there you go. Uh, last well, year he, he, he is dangerous. He is. He is dangerous. <laughs> Uh, and that is Haas. I, you know, I, I root for Haas not only because they're American, um, but because of this, like, I kind of like the gusto of coming in and saying like, you know what, we're going to go right up to the edge of the rule book and we're going to buy as much as we can Ferrari from Ferrari. We're going to make a team. We're going to see how well we can do. Um, they've also endured some like really, uh, rough setbacks. Like, um, last year they <laughs> screwed up their pit stops or, uh, mm. not last year, two years ago. Um, and uh, cost themselves a lot of points. Uh, I don't know. They they feel like they feel like the underdogs to me. Uh, and I just I like Gunther Steiner and I like their drivers. So I like Haas. Yeah. Well, they they came in and and seemed to be like vying for that top of the mid pack, and they just ate it last year. Like just yeah. nothing. Could this not the figure out season, their car. Yeah, by a mile. The only thing that um, saved them, I guess, was that. We basically had like a no-show of a team last year, Williams, the final <laughs> team we're going to talk about now, which is a massive shame considering the rich Formula One history that is carried with that name. Uh, Williams, um, the executive of, of the team, Sir Frank Williams, a uh, famous Formula One driver, massive presence on the whenever he goes to races. He's, he's part of a sort of the, you know, a generation of drivers of which there aren't that many. And we've sadly lost many more in j- just to old age in recent years. Um, uh, Williams is wheelchair bound after a, a crash that he, he uh, was involved in during his career. Um, his daughter, Claire Williams, OBE, is the uh, sort of de facto team principal. I think she's co-team principal or co-executive, but she's the one boots on the ground who's running the team. Uh, they're based out of Grove in Oxfordshire and they're, they're pretty much like one of the you know sort of beating hearts of f of british motorsport really full stop and um, rocket williams racing is the team um they are a, a they have a mercedes engine in in their uh in their car but it i guess last year was kind of a, a catastrophic just mismatch of 
either time or funding or personnel nothing just seemed to go right for them and um, they were miles behind the pace uh, in terms of qualifying um drew mentioned that there is a there is a rule in qualifying that if you're not within a certain percent of the the rest of the pack or the final car then you don't get um to join the race um williams were behind and right up against that limit for most of last season um, with one of the drivers we have here, uh, one, uh, Robert Kubica, who is uh, uh, doing test driving for um, Alfa Romeo, as Rob said. Uh, the two drivers they have this year, one is returning from last year and one is new. They are both very young drivers who have uh, had sort of differently prolific careers in uh, younger disciplines or, or, or lower disciplines in, in open wheel racing. Uh, George Russell is 22 years old. He managed to come last last year with zero points. He was the only driver to not score any points. Um, but that is a, an unfair reflection of his driving skills. He's a winner in both Formula 2 and GP3 in the prior two years. Um, uh, uh, an effective sort of a prodigy, much like Max Verstappen. Um, he is the same age as Max Verstappen, but is uh, much fresher to Formula One, uh, this being his second year. His teammate, Nicholas Latifi, is he's 24, so he's rather young, um, and he has a kind of a ridiculous career in driving <laughs> in that he, if you look at his sort of recent past, he came second in, in Formula Two last year, but that is by far the best he has done. Um, in a prolific <laughs> journeyman career for somebody in his mid-20s. Um, he has raced in practically every <laughs> open-wheel racing discipline in the world, oftentimes uh, multiple um, seasons, uh, multiple disciplines within the same season. Um, so he's driven a lot. On top of that, his father is incredibly wealthy in, in a sort of a Lance Stroll mirroring uh, his father uh, bought a $270 million stake in McLaren um, right before Zach Brown took over, I think. So I think there was maybe a, a thought that perhaps he might get in there at some stage, but there was almost like a generational change in the executive branch of there, and it never really came to pass. But uh, he's another kid who sort of grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth, but um, has really thrown himself into into racing and last year kind of got his just desserts, I guess, um, becoming or getting second in a, in 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 GP two with Dams as well, which is a, or Formula two, sorry, with Dams as well, which is a very well regarded team. So it's going to be interesting to see the two of them um, up against it. George has, I would say, a cleaner past in terms of it's about as clean as it gets. A twenty two year old who's won both uh, sort of uh, divisions underneath Formula one. Uh, Latifi has struggled, but uh, has sort of pulled it out. You know, he like worked really hard for a number of years, and then last year, kind of, it all stuck. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, ultimately, how good both of those drivers do will be down to how good the engine behind them is. Um, Williams, like we said, had an absolutely horrific year last year. Uh, hopefully, no one's expecting them to be fighting for the mid. I think the dream this year is that they just are able to race at all, and they're not just you know, uh, uh, somebody to wave blue flags at. Yeah, I um, I watched Latifi a little bit in Formula 2 last year, and he seemed really solid. Um, mm. And I think, this is just my um, estimation, um, but I think his, you know, not, like, flatter rise, I guess, um, you might be able to attribute to the fact that he started racing 
relatively old. Most of these guys yeah. start carding when they're like five. And I think Latifi came to it when he was like a teenager. So he's sort of an outlier there. Um, but yeah, we don't really haven't seen what he can do uh, in an F1 car yet. Should we take it to the calendar, Danny? Sure. Those are the teams. That's all of them. There's 10 of them, right? 10 yep. teams, two drivers each. Uh, there used to be a time where there was fewer races than drivers, but we have long crossed the Rubicon. Um, this year was set to be the most races ever. Um it still might be or tied for it, I guess, uh, although we've lost one off the calendar. There are 21 races currently set for the 2020 Formula One Championship. Um, I'm not going to go into an exhaustive detail on every single one of them, but what we're going to do is kind of split them into two types of tracks and also two or three sort of sections that the the um, uh, the ch- calendar is kind of generally split into we like splitting things into tree and f1 practice qualifying in the season as well uh, ostensibly though it's all kind of bundled in together there's a bit of a mid-season break but generally there won't be more than a one-week gap or a two-week gap between um uh, each race uh the first i guess uh section of f1 starts off in australia um at albert park uh, which is a, a a circuit in a park. It's kind of half street circuit, half uh, Grand Prix circuit. What we mean by that is that some street circuits are essentially you know normal streets that a normal road car would drive on 360 days of the year, let's say, um, and then some of it or all of it is used for uh, uh, racing. There's two um, actually this year. I think there might be three now two um, races this year that are fully on just street circuits, Monaco and Singapore. Uh, and then there are other ones like Australia that are sort of like hybrids where some of it is, is normal road and some of it is dedicated racetrack. Um, then you've got ones like the next one, Bahrain, which are purpose-built circuits that are set you know, in a, a, a closed circuit, which is only ever used for, F, for uh, racing, um, uh, oftentimes F1 being the most important race, and then they have different sort of events on throughout the year. Um, so this first section is kind of dominated this year by two new races. After Bahrain, we're going to Vietnam to the Hanoi Street Circuit, which is a hybrid circuit. There is parts of it which are um, not actually part of the street circuit, um, which is has a very odd configuration. It almost looks like a sort of a three-winged boomerang or something. Um, So we're all very interested to see uh, what that one looks like. And then the next race, number four, is in Zandvoort in uh, Holland. It's the Dutch Grand Prix uh, in the Netherlands, which is a a racetrack that F1 has been to in the past. I believe 1985 was the last time we were there. Um, So it'll be a good one to return to. Many of the drivers will have driven there um, in in other disciplines as well. and then we sort of bounce around a little bit, the Spanish Grand Prix, uh, Azerbaijan, and Monaco, of course, which is perhaps the the jewel in F1's crown, um, not necessarily for exciting racing, but sort of for the audacity to even attempt to race these incredibly fast, wide cars on a, on a, you know, a street circuit, which you'd probably struggle to turn on in a Fiat 500. Um, so Monaco is always a good fun. Uh, then, like I said, Azerbaijan comes up. And then Canada, which kind of finishes off the uh, first wing, shall we say, of the F1 calendar. The next one is is dominated by sort of a European-focused um, uh, middle chapter. The French Grand Prix at Circuit Paul Ricard, which is a circuit I absolutely hate. And <laughs> I think a lot of F1 fans do after the past 
couple of years. Um, and then we have a section of really exciting traps, uh, tracks. The Austrian Grand Prix at Red Bull's uh, own circuit. The British Grand Prix in Silverstone, famous. Uh, the Hungarian Grand Prix and the Hungara Ring. Um, the Belgian Grand Prix in Spa-Francorchamps, another incredibly famous track um, in the Ardennes Forest. Um, and then, of course, the Italian Grand Prix at uh, Monza, which is another um, uh, incredibly famous and historical F1 track. Um, after that, we get into the final section, which uh, occupies a lot of newer tracks, some incredibly new and some which I guess are, are, are new if you're a long-time F1 fan. Uh, we go to Singapore, which is in Marina Bay, which is a nighttime race. I guess the second nighttime race now that Bahrain has decided to stick to nighttime too. Uh, the Russian Grand Prix in Sochi, which is kind of the world's most boring-looking F1 track, but has, uh, I, gotta, I guess, lit, been the host to a, a number of interesting uh, races. It's either interesting because... It's either interesting for all the wrong reasons or it's the most boring race in the world. <laughs> That's so cheap. <laughs> um, Japan at Suzuka with its incredible figure eight uh, unique uh, layout, which we don't see anywhere else. The United States Grand Prix in Austin, Texas at the Circuit of the Americas, another uh, relatively new track. Uh, then we go to Mexico. Then we go to Brazil to uh, to another famous track into Lagos. And then we finish at Abu Dhabi, which is the, um, I guess it's probably maybe... 10, 11, maybe 10 years old. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, Adios Marina, which is a, a day-to-night race, which sort of um, starts in daytime, goes through twilight, and ends up at nighttime as we close out the season. Uh, the Shanghai International Circuit, uh, which plays host to the Chinese Grand Prix, was meant to be, I believe that would have been the second race of the season. Um, uh, it would have been the fourth. Fourth, okay. So yeah, it would have been after Between Vietnam, Vietnam and uh, Netherlands. Okay, uh, rather, you know, because of the uh, coronavirus outbreak, which is, uh, uh, I guess, kind of scaring everyone at the moment, but it's certainly a massive issue uh, of health with uh, the, the folks in China. Um, because of that, it's been uh, it's been cancelled. There was word of them trying to fit another race in. Um, I'm not sure where they are with that because sliding it in at this late notice is going to be rather difficult. Um, I think, if anything... Probably people are taking a look at all the other races going on in that part of the world uh, and and abroad and seeing if if um, the coronavirus is going to have an issue there. Europe is having a massive problem. Italy, for instance, has had a huge uh, um, or a relatively large outbreak in the north. Um, France, Spain, I was just in uh, France on the east coast. There were some cases. Um, and then you're looking at places like Vietnam or Japan. Um, it's obviously a massive issue too, especially with something like F1, which is you know basically a sport where outsiders go to a country, so you've uh, and 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 end up spending a lot of time in 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 travel, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, airports and, and train stations and whatnot. So um, yeah, we'll have to see how many races end up getting postponed or, or moved around this year. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, we've lost the Chinese Grand Prix. I always enjoyed that track. It had the longest straight of the year. Uh, it was never really that populated. They always struggled getting people there because of kind of where they built the circuit. But um, as you will learn going through the F1 calendar, each circuit has its own um, uh, unique aspects that you will either warm to or learn to hate. Turns that are famous uh, historically or, or places where interesting things happened in previous years. Um uh, every year or every week rather on, on Shift F1 we do a track walk and talk about the history of them so that's kind of your I don't know the glazing on top of the cake but we'll get down into the delicious um, chewy goodness before each race uh, as the season progresses speaking yeah, of worth you go, go ahead for a run 
Well, I was going to say, speaking of cracking open the shells of the soft, chewy center, uh, perhaps we should talk about what's going on inside these cars. Yeah, uh, just I wanted to point out one thing about the calendar is that we get the traditional month-long break in the summer from August 2nd to August 30th, but because the Chinese Grand Prix is no longer happening, we have another month-long break, a spring break. Of course. From the 5th of April to the 3rd of May. So it's going to be a dearth of racing content during that time. Unless you're a patron. Exactly. (laughs) We'll get to that. Uh, so what is, what makes an F1 car work? What makes these cars special? Um, gasoline wheels, not as much as you might think. Let's start. Let's start right there. Gasoline. (laughs) Uh, F1 (laughs) runs hybrids. Uh, now this is 20, 2020 is an interesting year. They are about to roll out some massive revisions, uh, to the technical regulations, uh, for these cars. And, Next year's cars are going to be very different. They're going to look very different, particularly from an aerodynamic standpoint, which we will get to. Uh, but this year, uh, which is the, is the last year of sort of this era of the technical regulations where, for, for, where Mercedes has been so dominant, uh, sort of the heart of this era, the thing that kicked it off was the transition away from traditional uh, V8 engines to turbo hybrid V6 engines. Um, And it's been a really interesting arc with this because uh, when those engines were first rolled out, they were significantly less powerful than the V8s they were replacing. And Mm -hmm. lap times went up. Uh, so the cars used to be faster around the tracks. They switched to these less powerful engines and, uh, lap times went up cause the cars were slower. And for a long time, it looked like, well, F1 had sort of consciously decided to slow the cars down in, in the name of going to hybrids and making the series maybe a little bit more relevant to the direction that, uh, street cars are going. Uh, they had sort of bid farewell to the days of the ridiculous speeds of the V8 engines, much less the like V12s. Uh, as is the way of things in F1, they found a way to claw a lot of that speed back. Uh, and so for the last couple of years, they've sort of been setting fast times year after year. Uh, and part of that is because while the V6 engine is uh, probably not as powerful as a lot of its uh, predecessors, despite improvements to engine efficiency over the years, uh, it is, of course, a hybrid. And so it's not just a V6. It is an engine that is also capturing uh, very, like other energy uh, that the car is producing while it is braking or while it is uh, blowing exhaust uh, you know, through, through its ducts. Um, and it is charging a battery every lap, which is discharging and adding a significant amount of horsepower uh, to the car's performance each lap. The balance of energy harvesting and energy discharging is something that can be tweaked uh, according to the team strategy and needs at any given point. And on top of that, because of some of the ways they harvest the energy, uh, it is something that can be dependent on driving style as well. Uh, so the hybrid side of the engine has two energy harvesting uh, methods. One is energy recovery. And that is uh, 
it used to be the kinetic energy recovery uh, system, but basically every time the car is uh, braking or loading up components, uh, there are also flywheels sort of harvesting the spare energy produced uh, by that slowing action to charge up the battery. Um, and you can notice cars when they've when they switch to like aggressive harvesting settings uh, that will further intensify sort of the braking effect and slowdown uh, of the car entering corners. Uh, so a car will have a different sort of affect uh, when they are aggressively recharging uh, the car. The other method they use to recover energy is the uh, the thermal recovery system, uh, the MGUH, uh, as it's called, which basically, as the exhaust is being blown out the car, it is again spinning a turbine up and charging the battery that way as well. Uh, these are enormously powerful and sophisticated engines. Uh, they really are kind of marvels of technology. They're, as you might also expect, really complicated. Uh, that is effectively two different uh, battery energy recovery systems and V6 engine that all have a really complicated interaction uh, happening every single lap. And by the way, because you're talking about batteries and energy harvesting, these things run hot as hell, uh, which is tr the traditional nemesis of a car's engine. And so if that's not daunting enough, because the season is now so long, uh, the season keeps getting longer, but the engine allotment stays the same. Uh, and so these, on paper, teams are supposed to get through this year with, uh, broadly speaking, three engines. Uh, run every race on three engines. Other components can be swapped in or out at different rates. Um, but if you go beyond your allotment of these components or of these engines, they begin hitting you with massive penalties and you end up having to effectively, uh, at some point in the race, someone, at some point in the season, teams do the calculation. They just need to eat those penalties all at once. They will load the car up with new components. They will start one race in the back of the grid. Uh, and then they will try to get through the rest of the season on their fourth engine or, or what have you. Um, however, teams can't do that that often because track position is really tough to recover. And so reliability is a huge feature of F1 racing. Uh, those teams you're we talking about earlier, a lot of them kind of having crap years, McLaren in particular, uh, a big part of that is reliability. Uh, the, the thing that tended to determine who's been successful in this year and who is not is first and foremost, who can produce a car that can run at pretty respectable speed uh, at these sort of like sustained paces for, six, seven races uh, without blowing an engine. That's kind of been the defining feature of this year. This year, it does... Like, last year, it started to feel like, um, you know, Honda's engine program had finally caught up, and uh, the, the, the field is starting to condense again, at least as far as engine technology uh, and reliability. Power, uh, chassis, that's, that's another matter. Uh, the other aspect of these cars is that one of the other ways they recovered a lot of that speed uh, that they that they like were supposed to lose when they changed eras was uh, through greater and greater aerodynamic sophistication. Mm. Uh, these cars can go faster through corners uh, than a lot of their predecessors, but that's that comes at a cost. Uh, 
in essence, the cars are now incredibly aerodynamically sensitive. And so if you were to take one of these cars out on the track in complete isolation, it's almost like a lab condition. You're out there alone. The only thing disturbing the air is your car. These cars are miraculous in what they can do and the speeds they can run at. Add a second car to that track near you, and it disturbs the air and changes how it goes over all the, uh, you know, winglets that are on the car all over the aerodynamic surfaces on the car and suddenly a lot of that cornering ability begins to disappear and that begins to take it out on the tires uh basically if aero starts failing the thing that bears up the load are the tires and the tires wear out uh this has also made it so that f1 overtaking is really really tough and if you are new to f1 uh, welcome to our obsession and hobby horse, the overtaking <laughs> question. Uh, let me tell you right now, it will never get better. <laughs> no, I, yeah, yeah. I, I've been watching F1. Oh, it'll get better. It'll get worse in a different way. The minute it starts to get better, it gets worse somewhere else. Next year, they're swearing to God that they've licked it, <laughs> that the uh, overtaking study groups have figured it out. They're, they're, they, and they have for like instituted the most radical technical regs for next year I've ever seen where they've basically said all the really Baroque sophisticated aerodynamic uh, components that we've seen in F1 cars for the last 10 years, all the little like mini winglets. These things basically, these things basically look like um, Autobots, I guess is that no, what are the evil ones? What are the evil ones? The Decepticons? Yeah, Decepticons. F1 car, F1 cars aerodynamics make them look like Decepticons. They're all like weird little edges and angles and like razor spikes. Uh, all of this is like the black magic of aerodynamics. Next year, they're making pretty much all of that go away and imposing some really severe, like brutish standards on what these cars can do <laughs> in the hope Brutalist of making cars. them yeah in the hope of making them less aerodynamically sensitive maybe this will work but let me tell you as long as i've been watching f1 there's been this question of these cars can't freaking pass anybody anymore and mm. how do we fix it uh well the solution for the last uh several years has been the uh drag reduction system which isn't so much as a, a system as it is a gimmick uh in two places on, or is it three now? Uh, how many DR zones? It's usually yeah, it's two or three. Depends on the track. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where they where they can at add least it. two. Yeah, uh, in a couple places on each track, they have a DRS zone, in which if you are within one second of a car in front of you, whether you're on the same lap or not, all you need to be is within one second of a car in front of you. You get you are eligible for the drag reduction system, which allows the rear wing spoiler to pop open and basically become like a thin line as it faces the wing, as it faces the wind. Uh, so instead yeah, parallel of... Parallel to the ground. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that immediately reduces the drag and downforce coming off the wing uh, pretty enormously. And that should give the, t- the pursuing car a great deal of advantage in overtaking. Um. This has been the solution. It has been an inconsistently successful solution. And I think one of the really shocking things last year was uh, at the end of the season, was it Was it the last one, Abu Dhabi, where the DRS didn't even turn on for half the race? Oh, yeah, it was, it was right. No, I think it was Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Uh, 
DRS didn't turn on for half the race, and we saw more overtaking than we'd saw we'd seen in like several races. Uh, as people started to realize, like I guess the DRS is never happening, so we'll just start trying to force moves. Uh, and it yeah. was awesome. So DRS does it really work? I have no idea. Um, it definitely creates a dynamic you'll see a lot, which is that drivers will set up their attacks to come right as they enter DRS range of another car. Because closer you run. Uh, the worse the air quality, uh, the greater the heat, because you're p- you're basically picking up someone's exhaust. So ideally, you just want to come right up on somebody and at the last minute hit that DRS zone and zip past them. That's the theory. Uh, F1 rarely operates according to that theory, but that's how that's how DRS works. Um, what all this ties to is probably the main strategic or tactical component of uh formula one racing which is the tire wear uh formula one is supplied by a single tire manufacturer pirelli and one of the interesting things about the pirelli contract and this has come up a few times is among the different ways that f1 has tried to sort of improve the show and make it a more interesting spectacle uh is to create Tires that perform to certain specs and have to, and fall off at certain wear rates, and uh, so it's a it's a curious situation where F one cars may not be running on the best tires possible. What they're running on are tires that are supposed to create some interesting decisions and dilemmas uh, on each racetrack. Pirelli make in addition to uh, a wet compound for heavy rain and an intermediate compound both of these have uh intermediate tires have light treading uh to wick away basically standing water after it's rained or a light mist uh the wet weather tires are full heavy treaded uh racing tires because f1 runs in some incredibly bad weather uh at times and it gets awesome when it does but um beyond that they run what are called racing slicks uh, which is just a you know flat surface uh, that sticks to the road, um, and they are made to five compounds of varying hardness. And the trade-off with tires is that harder compound will wear better; it will last longer, but it will not adhere to the ground as closely. A softer compound will be a bit stickier, uh, but will of course kind of melt away uh, faster during a race. There are five compounds that they use throughout the season, but they only take three to each uh, track, and Pirelli kind of tells you which three you're getting. And teams are allowed to sort of choose their allotment of those three depending on how they want to use their tires in practice, depending on what they expect their racing strategy will be. Uh, But in general, each race weekend, you will have a hard tire, a medium tire, and a soft tire. Uh, And that is sort of what compounds those come out to depend on sort of the track surface and what Pirelli thinks is going to uh, generate a decent and safe race uh, for their tires at each track. Uh, The tires themselves, the other rule that comes up with them is you have to run barring weather, at which point all bets are off. If you have to to take wet weather tires, you don't have to follow this rule. Mm. Uh, But if it remains a clear, dry day, you have to run the race on two different compounds. And usually that means that there's 
one tire that is the best for that weekend, or at least the best for your car that weekend. And if you could run the race just on that tire, that would probably be the best way to run that race. You're not allowed to do that. You have to use two. And so one of the things that teams end up doing a lot uh, in, in, in F1 is they try to strategize around pit stops and like what tire they want to start on and which one they want to switch to midway through the race. Uh, and that is always being calculated in relation to the cars you are racing against. Uh, one of the things that you will hear a lot across the season is uh, issues of the undercut or the overcut. Uh, and basically that is just two ways of sort of going off what is considered the optimal strategy uh, in terms of tire wear to try and get an advantage off of somebody else. If you were undercutting someone else, you come in earlier than expected while your opponent remains out on track on older tires. You get on fresher tires, you come out, and if it works out well, your tires are fresher and faster, and you regain more time than you lost in that pit stop while your opponent, who was on worse tires, ran a slower lap. When they come in, you have closed the gap relative to them, and you pass them while they are in the pits. Uh, overcutting is basically the opposite of that, where you stay out on track uh, while your opponent comes in, and hopefully you manage to open up a greater lead while they're stuck standing still in the pits and uh, adhering to the pit lane speed limit. And then when you come in, you have a safe gap uh, to either overtake them or stay ahead of them, uh, whatever the case may be. Uh, but all of this is playing a little bit with fire because the tires uh, are very finicky in this era. Uh, one of the curious things about this era is that the tires themselves are kind of hatefully inconsistent, uh, a mm -hmm. lot of the teams would say. Uh, tires have a surface temperature and a carcass temperature. Uh, basically, the surface of the tire versus the sort of heart of the tire. And those need to be roughly consistent. Ideally, you want your your tire to be evenly heated throughout, like a nice warm, uh, you know, nice warm blanket or something uh, is, is kind of what you want your tire to feel like. When those things begin to fall apart, when the surface begins to get like blazingly hot and the core of the tire is not, uh, the surface begins to wear away really fast and effectively loses a lot of grip. And it's almost as if your car is driving on ice. And when you see it happen, uh, it's pretty dramatic. Uh, last year, the Haas team could never get their tires to work. This was their mm -hmm. tragedy. They could get them to work in qualifying, but over a race distance, those two tire temperatures would just continue to diverge, and uh, they were completely uncompetitive. The other thing that can happen is uh, if tires are not well taken care of, uh, what you can start to have happening is uh, blistering, uh, where you see just like chunks of the tire begin to come off, uh, often maybe because somebody locked up a tire and created a nasty, like superheated uh, part of the surface, and the tire begins to uh, strip itself apart. Um, and that can happen pretty spectacularly and the tire begins to underperform pretty quickly once that does as these tires wear as these tires wear they also leave what are called marbles everywhere on the track so after a few laps the race the racing surface is covered in basically little rubber pellets uh that if you get onto again the ads are very good you'll lose grip and uh things will uh, get away from you finally 
if you stay too long at the fair and you try to push those tires, if you try to <laughs> really explore uh, how long you can make tires last, and there's reasons to do that. Maybe you're hoping that uh, there will be a full course yellow or something like that, and you'll have a chance to, to stop safely. Uh, but tires generally lose performance at a, at a linear rate um, until suddenly they don't. And when that happens is kind of a mystery, but it will be each lap the tire after after it sort of hits its prime as an optimal performance, it will begin to linearly fall off. And each time around, it's a little bit worse and the car tends to run a little bit slower. That's a pretty smooth curve until you hit what's called the tire cliff, at which point the tire is completely spent. It has no grip <laughs> qualities left to it whatsoever. It's actually dangerous to be out on. And when that happens, you will know it because it will, you will see a car that was competitive a lap before suddenly driving uh, like a cautious uncle uh, on an icy day is the way I put it. And last year, I think we saw a couple times uh, drivers sort of come out the wrong side of this uh, mm. where they went over the cliff. And uh, at that point, that is a, you, you are a sitting duck. You are no longer in a race car. You are just trying to stay. You were just trying to stay on the, on the surface. Uh, one bit about tires that I forgot to mention when we were talking about qualifying is that oh, yeah. there's a rule that states for the drivers that make it into Q3, the top 10, they have to start the race on the actual tires that they used in Q2. So this is so teams aren't motivated to, say, take it easy in um, in Q3 on their tires. The Q3 tires are only used for Q3, so they're free to tear them up in their quest for the fastest qualifying time. Um, interestingly... Everybody else outside the top 10 is free to uh, to use new tires. But again, anyone in the top 10 <laughs> must use the same set of tires that they used in Q2. Make sense? Yeah. This is, I love it. I feel like if anyone's, uh, like, th this is a lot of information in one go, but this is, this is all the information yeah. <laughs> in lots of ways. Uh, and we've just got a couple of little bits left. Shall I jump into the rules, gentlemen? Yeah, let's do it. Sure. So like we've talked about the cars in great detail. Thanks so much, Rob. We've talked about the calendar. We talked about the teams. Uh, Drew gave a great sort of uh, uh, overview of of the sport generally, sort of uh, what it all entails. Um, and the last sort of thing to talk about is is kind of just the general rules of how stuff plays out on track. Um, you know, these, these cars are very specific. The tracks are very specific. Um, but sometimes things don't go according to plan or drivers act in ways in which they shouldn't. Um, and we're going to break this up into sort of three pretty small chunks. Uh, flags, uh, which are the sort of the way in which the, uh, the, the folks who are running the show communicate with drivers, uh, aside from the radios. Um, uh, the penalties that you get and also just the concept of how you defend from overtaking. Um, the flags, first of all, they kind of work um, pretty intuitively. Like if you understand how a stoplight works, then you've, you've got a lot of them down, basically. Uh, the yellow flag is there as a caution. It essentially means that you have to slow down 
and uh, it, it prohibits you from overtaking. Uh, the degree to which the yellow is being shown depends on if there's one flag, if there's two flags, um, uh, or if it's waving or not. So a stationary yellow basically means there's a danger near the track. A waved yellow flag means that there's generally a danger on the track. And then a double yellow means that there's probably something blocking the track or at least blocking the racing line. So you have to be like even more cautious. Uh, generally, when drivers see yellows, they sort of slow down. Um, uh, but there's uh, some incidents where they haven't slowed down enough, and we'll we'll get to that in a second when we talk about the ver- uh, the safety car. Um, in terms of the other flags, the green flag, as you might suspect, just means go ahead. Racing conditions have resumed. They usually show that after a yellow flag or something else. Um, and then the red flag means that the session has stopped. So in the you know, generally this happens, you know, when rain perhaps gets too torrential and it's dangerous, or if there's been a particularly bad crash which has blocked the track to a point where it's going to take the uh, the folks in charge of the circuit a good deal of time to clean it out, um, then that's when a red flag will pop up. Uh, then we get into sort of the more, a uh, couple of weirder flags you don't see all that often. Um, actually, there's one we see a lot of, unfortunately, which is the blue flag. Um, this is a flag which is shown to drivers who have, uh, who are lapping another car. So sometimes the uh, the person who's in the uh, pole position of the race, who's in first, will be so much faster than the cars uh, at the back of the circuit that they'll catch up with them on the lap. Uh, laps are, you know, as, as as short as a minute and 15 seconds sometimes. So sometimes if you're a second or two faster than the other car, it doesn't take all that much time for you to catch up with them over the course of a, you know, 90-minute race. So a blue flag is basically shown to the car who is about to be lapped to be like, look, just don't get in the way of the other car. Move over or at least allow there to be a gap uh, where they can overtake you. Um, then we get into the ones that we don't see all that often at all. So the black flag, which is usually shown in a number, means that a driver has been disqualified. Um, this would be the result of a very dangerous act um, that they have performed, uh, which wasn't bad enough for them to crash out themselves. Uh, again, we hardly ever see these. Um, there is a, a one that sort of comes before that, which is a half black, half white, sort of a diagonal uh, cut. Uh, flag, which is basically a pre-black unsportsmanlike uh, flag. Again, you hardly ever see this. Um, there's a one that's a black flag with an orange dot in the middle. Uh, this we did see last year. I forget which race it was, but uh, that basically means that there's something happened to the car, which means it's too dangerous to drive. And it, this is an order to the driver of the car to to pit the car and bring it in uh, because they shouldn't be out on track anymore. Um, then we have a yellow and red striped uh, a flag again pretty rare this means that uh, there is debris or oil on the track it's a warning to the drivers this would often be coupled with yellow flags um, interestingly if it is being rocked side to side it means that there is an animal on the circuit um, <laughs> I did not know this I did not know that either uh, it shows you how often uh, that happens we do often get animals on the circuit generally during like practice or something um, but uh, I never see the, the yellow and red uh, flag getting rocked from side to side. Um, I wonder how easy it is to tell if a flag is being rocked when you're <laughs> driving. Do they mean them. like this, like with like a uh, like a steering wheel? I think yeah, I think yeah, that way. That's how I. Okay. I don't think left to right. Okay. I think like yeah, like a steering wheel. I mean, That's there was that I time that it. dude at Singapore just walked onto the track, which I don't know if like that's true. Offensive probably yeah. to say like. Well, I mean, humans are animals, but nevertheless, like that, that is a rare case. People are not supposed to be wandering on the track, nor are animals. Uh, so I do wonder, like, did they show the flag for that time? A fan was just like, I'm going to frogger this. That was crazy. I believe they didn't even red flag it, did they? There was because uh, they ended up 
pulling him back in like not like maybe after 20 seconds or something yeah. it was on that straight away wasn't it um and then uh yeah one more flag the most important flag of them all in many ways is the checkered flag which means that the session is complete it gets waved at the end of practice qualifying and of course the race often by will smith um uh, <laughs> then the, the last sort of thing to worry about it's not necessarily a flag but there's another element of this which is the safety car which basically means that if there has been an incident on the racetrack which is particularly hazardous where you've got marshals going on the track to clear debris or perhaps you've a stricken driver who's being attended to um but perhaps not as serious as needing to halt the entire session uh, then a car will drive out on track uh, which is known as the safety car it uh it basically creates a train of the rest of the cars behind it uh, from first down to last and it'll sort of shepherd the cars around at you know medium uh, pace um while the uh whatever is happening on the track is being cleared off uh, this has uh, tactical um, implications as well, where if a you know team is hasn't pitted yet and a and a safety car comes out, it, it becomes a much more advantageous time to pit because they'll waste less time in the pit because the uh, speed of the laps is decreased so badly. Um, another uh, version of this, which kind of is lumped in with the flags, because flags can be physical flags, but they're also these sort of large LED lights, which are all around the track. Um, also on the driver's steering wheel, they tend to get most of these flags pop up too. Um, but there is a, a new one which was introduced after the tragic loss of life of one of the drivers uh, a number of years ago, which is known as the virtual safety car, which essentially uh, establishes a smaller speed that the drivers a sort of a window of speed that the drivers have to drive inside of uh, it's a way of ensuring that all cars uh, across the entire circuit slow down um without the need for bringing a safety car out on track which is rather disruptive and you know is usually a sort of a four five six lap um event uh that the race sort of has to be you know rolling started from afterwards so that's the vsc you'll see it pop up on the boards a virtual safety car um if you were to you know be a bad boy and it is all boys this year as it is most years in f1 um you might get yourself a penalty and these come in in kind of three main uh uh fashions you get a five second penalty which is one of the more common ones uh, this is for small infringements on sportsmanlike conduct um maybe doing some uh, you know very uh, minor curb skipping or stuff like that um it's one of the more common uh, penalties you get. Uh, more serious than that would be a drive-through penalty, which basically... Oh, sorry, and by five-second penalty, I mean that this is uh, the uh, sort of uh, added to your time at the end of the race. Um, a drive-through penalty is when the uh, driver is forced to drive through the pits, which is obviously a the pit lane, a much s- slower part of the track, um, uh, in a way to just sort of give them a slap on the wrist and make them lose a bunch of time uh, for doing something they shouldn't have been. Uh, this happens when there's sort of re- repeated uh, skipping of track limits, uh, jumping over s- particular parts of the track which you have been told pre-race not to do. So there's certain chicanes and certain um, or tight turns on certain tracks where if you don't go around a bollard the right way, they'll basically give you a drive through right away. Uh, repeatedly cutting corners, that type of thing. Um, and then one that's even worse Worse than that is a 10-second stop-go penalty, which means that you have to enter the pits, stop in your pit box for 10 seconds, and then continue. Although you can also just get your tires changed once that 10 seconds is over as well if you want. Um, This comes for sort of particular infractions that they're really trying to knock people 
uh, have people not do because they're they're sort of inherently dangerous uh, or or against the rules. If you were to jump start at the start of a race, uh, if you were to speed in the pit lane because that has a limit on how fast you can go because there's people walking around. Uh, if you were to repeatedly ignore the blue flags, which you're meant to uh, uh, sort of take stock of and move over for, uh, or if you're to do unfair blocking, which is something we'll get into in in a second. Um, there are other uh, penalties as well. You can get docked grid positions if you are um, do certain. You can get penalties for, as Rob was saying, changing certain aspects of the engine, or if there was a particularly bad infraction, infraction rather that happened near the end of a race or so after the race it was noticed, where the stewards were sort of looking at it once the race had actually finished. They can often just sort of move that um, uh, penalty to the next race. Uh, there are instances of race banning. They're very rare and in extreme instances. And there's also uh, um, situations where uh, drivers can be banned from the championship, but those usually enter um, a sort of a court arbitration uh, and, again, are very, very rare. Um, in terms of defending, this is sort of the the, the concept of you know, people are trying to overtake you and you're trying to put your car in the way so they can't. This is where a lot of the flag stuff happens, um, either because you are unfairly blocking somebody or in a worst case, forcing them off the track. And um, it's really difficult to give a sort of a 360 uh, view of what is okay and what's not okay. It's kind of a muscle that you'll develop throughout watching F1 over a number of races, over a number of seasons, looking at particular drivers, how they defend and how they overtake. But there are some general rule of thumbs that you you should sort of know about um the faa comes down on what's known as uh, an abnormal change of direction uh, this came in when max verstappen was doing some pretty wild stuff blocking sort of late um so generally if you're communic if you're if your drive craft is communicating to the driver behind you what your intent is then you're kind of allowed to do what you want but if you're intentionally obfuscating what you're doing so that means maybe making a double movement where you you know go to the right side of the track and then they try and overtake on the left and then you go to the left side of the track they don't like you doing that because it basically just creates like a metal wall and you're you're essentially at that stage just playing chicken with each other which isn't safe and also isn't necessarily interesting racing either um late movements aren't allowed as well so if somebody is diving down the inside of you and you know you neither of you have enough or you're really entering the window where both of you will have enough time to break to reach that corner and you decide to just chuck your car in there and sort of uh, to block them off um that's not really, uh, that's frowned upon as well. And then the last one is you really need to leave a gap for people to overtake. You're not allowed to just, you know, if somebody's driving up the inside of you, to just push them off the track by turning in uh, while you're in front of them. Uh, it's just reckless. It's dangerous. Again, it's not in the sort of uh, the, the, the sporting. They talk a lot about the rules as a sort of, uh, you know, as what they are in law and the sort of intent behind them. Um, F1 is a dangerous uh, uh, uh um, sport it's also one that people are incredibly competitive in but ensuring that drivers are respectful of the um the health and well-being of each other is really important and that's why these uh defending rules are sort of um malleable and change depending on the types of drivers the types of tracks uh, and the types of uh, circumstances that we see awesome uh there's probably a lot of lingo in there throughout this podcast that we have uh talked about um and defined but there's a few more uh words here that i think you'll hear occasionally on broadcasts so we just wanted to uh point those out back marker like you said danny when a blue flag is waved the slower car we call the back marker that's the one that's being overtaken um 
Break bias, this is kind of a tricky one, but uh, <laughs> it's one of the th- many things that a driver will adjust on the fly during a lap. Um, if you look really close, you can actually see on their steering wheel a lot of the times a display that will show you that they're changing the, the brake bias. I, have a, uh, I think this is a, a passage from the F1 website um, that I think explains it pretty well. Mm. When a driver matches the brake pedal, all four brakes act to slow the car down, but the driver can shift how effective the front brakes are compared to the rears by changing the brake bias. In the wet, a driver will usually shift the brake bias more to the rear to stop the front brakes from locking, while drivers will also change the brake bias throughout a race as the balance of the car changes thanks to factors like lower fuel levels uh, and tire wear. Uh, By the way, we don't refuel in Formula One uh, at this time. Uh, we used to. When was that band? Early 2000s? Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah, mm-hmm. 2004 maybe. Okay. Yeah, it was. there were too many dangerous incidents uh, with it. Yeah. And then also, it never accomplished what people wanted, which was to yeah. generate interesting racing. Uh, fuel strategy got figured out pretty quick. And so it, like, it sort of ended up in a very similar place, but it just meant for longer pit stops. Uh, so it was more fun to get rid of it. And who knows mm-hmm. how long these things will be running on fuel anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, speaking of pits one term for the pits is uh, that you'll hear is box it generally refers to the box drawn on the ground that your car goes into and is I guess easier to understand over the radio than pit mm. um, don't really know why that happens but that's that's the, the common lingo for pit is box um, alright uh, Rob can you describe oversteer and understeer <laughs> uh, yeah so the car you probably drive has understeer. Uh, mm-hmm. So when like the phenomenon of you see a corner and a line you want to take through the corner and you begin to turn toward it and the line you want to take and the line the car is actually traveling begins to diverge and the car is traveling a wider line around that corner, that's understeer. Uh, in general, that's also... This is why they balance uh, consumer cars for this. It's safer. Understeer is predictable, uh, but it does generally mean low performance. Uh, It is not snappy. You want a car to sort of dive into corners and then come right back out. However, if a car does that and you go too far the other way, uh, there's a chance the car will turn too sharply and especially with the way that F1 cars are laid out where there's a lot of like weight in the back, uh, there's a decent chance that the rear end will sort of snap around uh, when a car has what's called oversteer. Uh, and so oversteer is a little more dangerous uh, because obviously at that point you're you're in a skid or you could be pointing the other direction. Uh, the goal for car for F1 setup is to find the find the balance point where the car is responsive enough and doesn't have understeer, but is not so finicky that it is constantly oversteering. Uh, however, the way F1 tends to operate. Usually in the process of setting up a car, you kind of have to choose like which side of this you want to err on. Uh, the thing that you really hope for from an F1 car design is that it will at least be predictable as far mm. as these behaviors. The mark of a really bad F1 car is that it can be understeering one moment and oversteering the next, and drivers <laughs> are trying to parse out while they are driving it why that's going on. That was kind of the wrap on the Williams for the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the mark of a good F1 car is, is really, really uh, predictable to sort of control for where you're sort of setting the dial on the understeer oversteer balance. Uh, a bad one 
is a little bit more of a crapshoot that you're approaching corner by corner. Awesome. So, all right, that's a lot of information for you. <laughs> um, but this entire podcast is designed to be sort of a companion resource uh, for you as we go through the season. We, we're, our goal is to, to leave it open to, again, newcomers and veterans alike. So um, we're, we're there for you. But if you want to do some extracurricular research, we have a, a number of additional resources that we like. Uh, there's a YouTube channel called Chain Bear F1, mm. which does really good technical explanations uh, of things like how does the energy harvesting work or um, you know, why do drivers take a particular line through this corner and not just, you know, cut it as close as they can? Um, the, again, the, the F1 subreddit on uh, Reddit is, is also really good. Just, uh, a good, you know, um, uh, uh a lot of news stories and <laughs> Landon Norris memes all combined <laughs> together. Um, our, we have a Twitter account as well at shift F1 podcast where we try to, uh, retweet, you know, all the best news and, um, things we find funny. Uh, you can also follow all the drivers. I think most of them, I know Sebastian Vettel doesn't, uh, and I think Kimi Raikkonen only has an Instagram, but we've compiled all of the, the, the drivers, Twitter accounts on our website. But Lando's is really him. Lando's is really oh, him. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's <laughs> mention um, his Twitch account. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and we do have a website. We tend to put everything that we can in our, um, uh, show notes that we talked about. So the show notes in like your podcast app, you should be able to get there. But if for whatever reason you can't, uh, we put all that stuff on our website as well at f1.cool. Just type that into <laughs> your web browser. It'll it'll get to ship that one. Um, and uh, just a, a, a tip, I guess, for how to watch F1 physically. If yeah. you're in the US, uh, which is where your humble podcast hosts live, um, F1 airs on ESPN channels. We're generally pretty good about telling you which channel it's on for each race, but of course, you can have to look that up. Um, in the past, it has been ad-free on ESPN, which is a must for me personally, hmm. um, although I haven't seen any confirmation either way on whether they'll have ads this year on ESPN. They haven't, again, for the past few years. Um, you can also subscribe to F1's streaming service, which is called F1 TV, which allows you to see every session live and on demand uh via a web browser a roku device uh or with a phone app which i know on ios allows you to screencast to an apple tv i imagine it's that way on android as well but i haven't tried that Mm. Um, it's a relatively new service this is its third year so it occasionally has some bugs but it's generally all right um in the u.s i've I've been happy with it yeah it 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 costs um eighty dollars per year if you want the live streams or $30 per year if you just want the uh, on-demand races, which mm. go up on F1 TV a few days uh, after they happen. And actually, for the next two days uh, until February 28th, you can sign up for F1 TV uh, with a 25% discount if you use the offer code EARLYBIRD25. Cool. Uh, nice. So, not so. not affiliated with us, but... No. Um. And uh, I guess about our our podcast, we release an episode every week, usually on Wednesdays. If it's before a race, we talk about the track and what to expect from the teams, any relevant news stories. And if it's after a race, we usually do a uh, like a lap by lap breakdown, talk about the highlights, and uh, you know, armchair quarterback about what the driver should have <laughs> done, that kind of thing. Uh, we also use uh, or read user emails. So if you've got something you'd like to share or uh, a question, which I stress can absolutely be a newbie question, because if you have it, 
chances are somebody else does too, and it's the best way for us to know uh, what we should explain more about. Um, yeah, so if you'd like to send us an email about anything like that, uh, you can use shiftf1podcast at gmail.com. Um, yeah, uh, one other, I guess, chief component of Shift F1 is the, the Patreon. Danny, do you want to talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. We started this off a number of years ago on a, on a video game website, um, which is kind of crazy to think about now, <laughs> yeah. um, our origins on Giant Bomb. But um, for last year, we decided to sort of throw our hat in the ring with Patreon and see if we could uh, um, use it to sort of give us an excuse to make more stuff around this. We, we did this for free with no ads for like four or five years, I guess. Um, and uh, Rob came on board a number of years ago too. And it was like, I don't know, like let's, there's other stuff around this. There's other racing disciplines. There's like movies and like uh, racing culture and stuff that we, we thought it might be cool to, to do uh, things around. So that's why we made the Patreon to sort of uh, give us the, the resources and means to do it. Um, and it's been awesome. We've we've uh, got somewhere in the realm of I think it's 750 patrons at the moment, which wow. um, is is really really cool. Uh, and if you were to join up now on Patreon.com/shiftf1, you'd actually get access to not just the stuff we're going to do this year, but like all of last year's stuff. Like it's you basically get access to the archive. Um, so what that looks like, I guess right now we just have one tier where you pay five bucks a month. Um, uh, we're looking at adding some new stuff because we've had patrons asking for for different features and, and bonuses and whatnot. Um, we'll sort of get to that in the next couple of weeks. We're still trying to figure some of that stuff out. But uh, what that looks like is basically at least one uh, bonus podcast every month and then also a bonus video every month. Um, last year, our bonus podcast included everything from reviews of the Netflix series Drive to Survive to movies like Rush, Days of Thunder, um TT3D closer to the edge. Uh, we just did Ford versus Ferrari, for instance, which is a, a pretty new movie. Um, and we've also done primers, kind of like this episode where it's an F1 uh, primer. We've done primers for other stuff like IMSA and endurance racing, uh, Formula E, which is the fully electric uh, sort of uh, sister discipline to, to Formula One. Um, and that's like a cool way of uh, getting to explore different types of uh, racecraft. Uh, we also have videos. We don't do all that many videos. I think that's something I hope we'll do maybe more of for this year, especially as uh, me and Drew at least are in the same sort of general geographic location again. We love you, Rob, holding firm on the East Coast. Um, but uh, last year, uh, uh, the best thing I think we did was when all three of us were together in Los Angeles and we managed to get some of... Uh, Daniel Ricardo's Blue Coast beer. We did a beer tasting on camera. Um, we also drank some of that putrid rich energy. Spoilers, don't taste too good. Uh, uh, energy drink. So that was a lot of fun. And then every month I try and do a, a I play an F1 game from years past. Um, I've, sl- I've quickly started to run out of F1 games to play. Uh, but last week I was actually in Austin, home of uh, Circuit of the Americas, and I went to my favorite retro video game shop and bought like 15 racing games. So we are good to go uh, for next year. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what you get if you're a patron. Like the pay- the podcast as is 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 kind of you know f- uh, uh, we try and give you a a full fully featured podcast every week. Um, there's not many breaks in the season uh, for F1, and there isn't for us either. But if you want to support the show and get a little bit more and have a bit more fun with our community. Um, then go to patreon.com slash shiftf1. Awesome. Well, uh, any final thoughts, uh, Mr. Zachney? Uh, 
Not really. I'm just excited to get into the season because, believe it or not, we actually only scratched the surface of the storylines <laughs> and uh, tensions that are at play heading into the season. So I can't wait until we can start digging into the week by week, you know, race reviews. But also, let's be real, the ongoing soap opera uh, for man children that is Formula <laughs> One. <laughs> Yeah. Final thoughts, Danny? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, this is probably the most technical podcast you listen to us all year. Oh, uh, yes, uh, by far. Most of, our, yeah, most of our conversations are about the, you know, as Rob said, the sort of uh, ridiculous soap opera that is this uh, this traveling. This is my bachelor. Of, of rich boys. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> it 100% scratches that itch for me. Um, it's just a lot of fun. It's a lot of nonsense. It's serious and ridiculous. And it's it's incredible that it even exists. I think uh, as a companion piece to this podcast, uh, the Netflix series Drive to Survive, the second season of which uh, will be up in a matter of days, as Drew said, um, that's probably the other side of this coin. It'll introduce you to the drivers, um, their, you know, the, the teams, the characters behind the whole thing. Um, there, It's produced by a, like, a, a, award-winning incredible set of uh documentarians and and producers uh the last season's one was fantastic even if you don't give the slightest bit of difference about f1 um so fingers crossed this one is as good but i i think it's you know if you've got netflix just stick on the first episode and and if it if it connects to you then then check it out i think it'd be the perfect way to warm up to uh the 2020 season yeah agreed uh i am super excited for this season and i'm so very glad to have all of you listeners with us uh thank you for joining us have a good race weekend everyone we will see you all next week oh yeah at the end of each podcast i make a weird noise yeah.